Today on Blue 58, slowing down Kyle Shanahan's powerful 49ers offense is going to require a big effort on defense. And that effort is going to come down as much to who's playing as what they're doing on the field. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. As always, I hope you've righted the ship a little bit after the, the Cowboys win. I've returned more to normal. My heart rate has come down a little bit. Still walking around with a silly grin on my face a lot of the time because that was just <laughs> just a fun game. Uh, but now we've got the 49ers bearing down, and it's going to be a tough one for the Packers. I think just about everybody assumes that. There are some weaknesses in the 49ers machine. The Athletic has a great article about that out today. We will talk about that some in our next preview, or in our more formal preview of uh, the Packers matchup with the 49ers. But in the meantime, there are some things that need to be discussed on the Packers side of thing, and that basically boils down to who's going to be available for for Sunday. And there are a couple of big question marks or a couple of big discussion points, especially as it ter- pertains to the Packers defense. The first and biggest one is Kingsley Inigbari or J.J. Inigbari, depending on the, uh, the nomenclature you want to use there, given name or nickname. Um, the coaching staff seems to go back and forth on it, too. Uh, regardless, Mr. Inigbari is not going to be there on Sunday or Saturday because he reportedly has torn an ACL. Matt LaFleur would not confirm that in his press availability this week yet, uh, but everyone seems to be proceeding as though he is done for the year, and even if he's by some miracle not done for the year, it seems like he's probably not going to be available for Saturday. I think the real thing to watch here is his special team snaps. Inigbari played 194 snaps for the Packers on special teams this year, primarily as the left guard on their punt cover team. And the key part of that is not necessarily coverage as protection against the punt block. That is now the place to watch if San Francisco brings pressure in punt block situation. The related question here, though, is who steps up for Van Ness on or for Inigbari on defense and spoiling it a little bit there's Lucas Van Ness waiting in the wings uh, to fill in for Kingsley Inigbari right off the bat Van Ness has continued his hot streak um, or continued his hot streak against the Cowboys with two pressures uh, bringing his total over the or bringing his total streak now to eight straight games with at least one pressure the thing about Van Ness is that he has not been playing all that much, even as he has become more and more effective as the season has gone on. He's only broken 20 snaps once in the last five games, and has yet to play more than 50% of the snaps in a given season. That is something to watch, I think, as well, as the Packers look to replace uh, some snaps from Kingsley and Igbari. And then we have to talk about backfilling even further down the depth chart as well, because not only do you have to replace Inigbari on defense, but also replacing him on special teams. Van Ness plays a fair bit on special teams, not quite as much as Inigbari, but you still have to fill out those snaps. Who's going to get those reps? The most obvious candidate would be Brenton Cox Jr., a refresher on him. Signed with the Packers as an undrafted free agent after this spring's draft had a, a little bit of a a journeyman college career and not necessarily by his choice. He was with the with Florida most recently, but also played with with uh, with Georgia, and was for various reasons 
essentially dismissed from both of those programs. Nevertheless, he was Dane Brugler's 39th ranked edge rusher this spring. He just hasn't played all that much. We have not seen all that much of him. He's recorded a grand total of one pass rush this year. I believe he's still in the single digits and snap counts on defense and was never much of a special teams player, even in the preseason, which means that we should look even further down the depth chart for some options to replace Kingsley Inigbari. There are three options on the practice squad right now, Keyshawn Banks, Aaron Mosby, and Kenneth Otomegwu. Now we can probably rule Otomegwu out right away. He's the Packers international pathways player. If you haven't kept up on who's on the Packers practice squad in a while, he was a player out of Africa. I forget which country he's actually from. Um, but he joined the Packers basically having never played football before just as a chance to get some exposure to the game. And the Packers get a 17th practice squad spot basically to carry him for the whole season. He's not really a realistic option for the Packers in the playoff here. Taking nothing away from him, I just don't think he can be a serious consideration at this point. So who's it going to be? Well, between Banks and Mosby, my money would probably be on Mosby. Quick refresher on both of these guys. Banks, 6'3", 251 pounds at a San Diego State. Productive in college, played a ton of games, 59 in his career. Has been with the Packers since right after the draft and a practice squad member since the initial cuts. The Packers also picked up Aaron Mosby after the initial cut down, six foot three, two hundred and fifty pounds, so a pound lighter uh, than Banks. A smallish for an edge, of course, at at two hundred and fifty pounds. Not a tremendous athlete, just a three nine six relative athletic score. But I think most of that boils down to the fact that he is on the small side for a linebacker. But he was in the NFL prior to the um, to joining the Packers this uh, this summer, uh, appeared in three games for the Panthers last year, 2022, two snaps on defense, 33 on special teams. If you're looking to replace some special team snaps when, with an edge rusher, he is probably your guy. The Packers also worked out a couple of other edge rushers too, but they have been signed to futures deals today. Just a couple details about them real quick. First was DeAndre Johnson, six foot two, 252 pounds out of Miami. Uh, He has a career college production ratio of 1.1, also played at Tennessee. Middling athlete, though, 4.77 relative athletic score, went undrafted in 2022, has since spent some time with the Miami Dolphins and the Houston Roughnecks. The other guy is Deslin Alexander, 6'3", 264 pounds, played his entire college career at Pittsburgh, a .98 career production ratio there, an 8.41 relative athletic score, so better athlete than Johnson, or really any of the the Packers practice squad edges to this point. He went undrafted in 2023, spent some time with the Jets after the draft, was also on the Bears practice squad for a while this year. So there are all of your edge candidates. Uh, Alexander and Johnson, futures deals guys. There was one other futures contract announced today. Uh, I it, it, The name escapes me. It's not relevant to this game. We'll probably talk about them at some point this offseason. But my money would be on Mosby, though the Packers do seem pretty high on Banks too. Uh, to play most of the special team snaps, and then maybe Cox gets some burn on defense for the first real time this year trying to replace Inigbari. It's possible the Packers could also just go with a short bench as well and and just try to get by with a three-edge rotation. That does leave you a little bit thin and exposes you to even more injury issues, but those are assuredly your three best guys. There's going to be drop-off if you go to Cox at that point. 
So maybe that's the the route that the Packers just go with and they try to get by with one of these practice squad guys on special teams. Then the other significant injury area I think we got to watch out for is um, at linebacker. Uh, Quay Walker is a little bit banged up, though it seems like there's no real long-term concern there. Isaiah McDuffie, though, reportedly a stinger. Um, and I think that is something really to watch because he has been – Essentially, the Packers' number two linebacker right there with Devondre Campbell. Uh, Campbell played 575 snaps this year, obviously in and out of the lineup a little bit with injuries. Isaiah McDuffie, 513 snaps, though. Just due to injury, Campbell way outsnapped McDuffie against Dallas. But I think McDuffie is a pretty comparable player at this point. His missed tackle rate for the season is just 6.7%. Campbell's is up at 9.8%. That is just a three-tackle difference in terms of their their missed tackles, but it is noteworthy that McDuffie is missing tackles, I think, at a lower rate here. Their coverage situations are almost identical. According to Pro Football Focus, Campbell has uh, allowed 31 completions on 38 targets for 390 yards and three touchdowns. McDuffie hasn't allowed a touchdown, but he's allowed completions on 24 of 30 targets when he is the primary defender for a total of 208 yards. Campbell does grade out slightly better than Isaiah McDuffie in almost every area, but I think just in terms of what McDuffie can offer, he's probably a more useful player at this point. He looks fresher. He looks faster. He just doesn't look quite so beat up as Campbell, and he too is also a core special teams player. So if you're looking for something to worry about this weekend, I would say worry about the middle of the Packers punt coverage unit uh, because McDuffie, in addition to Inigbari being out at left guard, you've got McDuffie potentially out as the, the Packers' right guard on punt coverage. And again, if San Francisco is going for a block, they're probably going to be coming right up the middle. And just I can't imagine a situation where the 49ers coming up the middle on a punt block situation would dramatically shape a playoff game. There's just It's hard to picture something like that working out. But If you are inclined to worry about anything like that, perhaps having seen it in a different game like a couple years ago about this time, I mean, there's your situation right there. The other thing I wanted to talk about regarding availability on defense is just the Packers' usage of players in the secondary. I think basketball is kind of instructive here. Uh, In the regular season, at least in professional basketball, and probably in college basketball too, though I, I I don't think it matters quite so much there just because of how the talent distribution works. But in in the NBA, and I would suspect probably in most professional leagues, in the regular season you have to use more players because you're just trying to manage. You're trying to load manage there. You're trying to manage how many minutes guys are playing, the wear and tear they put on their bodies, uh, just trying to get everybody through the season or as many people through the season as you possibly can. And then you get to the playoffs and things tighten up and you might only be – in a four-game series, so you got to make sure you're fighting for every one of those minutes and your bench shortens a little bit and you're probably going to use only your top eight, maybe nine guys, and that's really your lineup. Your 10th, 11th, 12th guys on your bench are really just there for emergency depth. They're not actually going to play into games because you just need your best players out there in the playoffs. And I think that is kind of the case in the NFL, too, in some certain areas. And I think the Packers gave us a a really good look at that kind of situation in the secondary. They have been moving things around a little bit less as the season has kind of condensed here. 
And now against the Cowboys, we got a really good look at who the Packers want to play in the secondary. And we got that just because the, the Cowboys ran so many plays. There were over 90 plays on offense. And so that gives us a pretty good look at what the Packers want to do in the secondary. What did this past Sunday's game show us? Well, you've got your expected guys, Jair Alexander, Darnell Savage, and Keyshawn Nixon. Jair Alexander played only 55% of the snaps, but he was hurt, so that drives down his numbers. Outside of Jair Alexander, though, you've got Darnell Savage lining up for 83% of the snaps, and Keyshawn Nixon uh, lining up for about 90%. It was the high 80s as well. I didn't actually write it down here in my notes, but he was in the high 80s as well. Nixon, interestingly enough, might be the only guy in the secondary this year whose role has played out basically exactly as expected from a participation standpoint. Jair Alexander's been in and out of the lineup, so you can't really say his season has gone according to what we expected or hoped. Rasul Douglas, I don't think anybody was anticipating that midway through the season he was going to be in Buffalo. Eric Stokes, we expected him to be out early in the season, but then everything fell apart after he came up, came back again. And then you've got the safety rotation that we'll talk about here in a second, but that's been all over the place too. Keyshawn Nixon, though, was their number one slot guy from the get-go, and he's been that as long as he's been healthy this year. He played a career-high 809 snaps on defense in the regular season, his previous high just 289, and that was with the Packers last year. Honestly, this is probably slightly too big of a role for him. You're probably exposing Keyshawn Nixon a little bit more than you would optimally like to. But look, like a bunch of these other guys in the secondary, these more lightly regarded players in the secondary, Keyshawn Nixon leads by example by leaving absolutely everything out there on the field every week. He's not taking anything back to the locker room with him. Keyshawn Nixon has given you everything he's got for better or for worse, a little bit of a wild man sometimes, but you need some of those. And he's a, he's a good one in that respect. We said last year one of the things that made Keyshawn Nixon such a good and exciting kick returner is that he's not afraid to die. And I think that's still true. It might sound a little crass or overdramatic, but if you've ever had a chance to return a kickoff, I think you know that feeling. Even at the lowest levels of football, you know, your junior high ball or your your high school ball, when you're returning a kickoff, there's a lot happening that is way outside your control. On an offensive play, you know pretty much where everybody is. On a defensive play, when you're playing defense, you're reacting to things as, as they're happening, but you understand the geometry of the field. Kickoff returning is a mess. And sometimes you really have a hard time getting an angle on where all these defenders are coming from. You can be blasting through a an opening that looks wide open and not see anybody coming ready to give you everything they've got right on the other side of one of your own blockers. It looks like they've opened a hole for you, but there's somebody just waiting there ready to blast you on the other side. Keyshawn Nixon completely unbothered by that all the time. And that's, I think, what makes him really great. Anyway, a digression there, but uh, I think we all love Keyshawn Nixon, so that's a, that's a little bit of fun. He has been basically, though, the only guy, I think, in the secondary whose role has played out as expected. Then you've got some rotational or question mark guys, but their roles, I think, solidified in a big way against the Dallas Cowboys, starting with Jonathan Owens. My presupposition at the start of this season was that this year was going to be, at least at safety, about Darnell Savage. And then everybody else um, kind of filling in around Savage. 
that really has not been the case, at least if you look at the the snap counts. Because in addition to playing some three safety looks, it's really been Jonathan Owens plus everybody else, at least for the last three quarters of the season. Over the last 11 games of the regular season, Jonathan Owens played every single snap on defense. 100% defensive participation in 11 straight games and probably would have hit it again against the Cowboys had he just not needed a a breather or had had there just not been so many plays, he probably would have been out there for 100% of them again because he was right up there near the 90 play mark in this game. Is it a good thing that Owens is playing so much? It's not an ideal thing. But I think there's, there is value, and we've made the case for this before, of just having known commodities out there. And look, 100% over 11 straight weeks is a pretty known commodity for your secondary. At least you can operate around that and, uh, and know what you're dealing with. Then you've got Carrington Valentine. I don't know if, look, playing a playoff game, winning a playoff game, if you told me about that in August, would have been a welcome surprise. Winning a playoff game with day three pick Carrington Valentine playing 90% of the Packers' defensive snaps would have been a shock, I think, beyond imagining. But he is clearly the Packers' second cornerback right now. When they need somebody to play across from Jair Alexander, they turn first and foremost to Carrington Valentine. That's pretty clear. Then you've got Corey Valentine beyond that, kind of a boomer bust player. But I think like, like Valentine, like Keyshawn Nixon, Valentine is going to give you absolutely everything you've got. So there is the Packers' playoff secondary. That's everybody that they'll probably have against the San Francisco 49ers. Rudy Ford is is not an option right now on injured reserve. Everybody else um, who's been in and out of the lineups, your Anthony Johnson, played barely more than a dozen snaps against the Cowboys. Zane Anderson is never going to be a reliable option in the secondary. That's not why he's here. He had to be just playing to give guys a breather um, on Sunday, and just because the Packers were up by 32 points at some point, you just you got to save guys a little bit if you can. But these six, these are your guys. These are the guys that are going to have to slow down um, Kyle Shanahan and the Packers off, or and the 49ers' offense. Brock Purdy, to the extent that that um, he's going bombs away, is going to be attacking these guys. These are the guys who are going to have to be slowing down the 49ers' yards after the catch attack stuff. These are the guys that are going to have to be dealing with with George Kittle and Debo Samuel, um, Brandon Ayuk. Uh, that that's all that it it comes down to. Uh, these are going to be the guys, and love them or not, this is what the Packers have. Finally, I wanted to close out today with something that I've been thinking a little bit about, and then put some time into researching today. After, and I've got to give give some interesting credit here. Uh, after Justice Mosqueda and Tex Western of the Acme Packing Company podcast mentioned it on their post-game recap of the Packers' win over the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, pressures are different. There are different kinds of pressures. Uh, we've talked about this kind of obtusely a couple times over the course of this season. Um, but the different kinds of pressures that people get matter. This has been kind of a nagging issue in the back of my mind since Packers outside linebackers coach or then Packers outside linebackers coach Mike Smith made a big deal of it in regard to Zadarius Smith. He said that people, basically paraphrasing here, 
Um, people put too much weight on sacks and not enough weight on other ways that you can affect the quarterback. And basically people have divided um, pressures or affecting the quarterback into three categories. You've got your sacks, you've got your hits, sometimes referred to as knockdowns, and you've got your hurries, your three main ways that you can affect the quarterback. And and they all matter. Um, but I think it's, it is intuitive um, that certain kinds of pressures matter more. It's nice to get a whole bunch of hurries to affect a quarterback, but you could have 10 hurries in a game and a guy could still throw for 500 yards and and five touchdowns. If you get 10 sacks in a game, things are going to be entirely different. Those are drive altering plays. It changes it changes what plays are available to you for an offense. And Justice and Tex brought this up in regard to Devontae White, who regularly shows up on a bunch of different um, pass rushing efficiency charts and uh, pass rushing grade charts, success charts, all the advanced metrics and stuff like that seem to like Devontae White a lot as a prospect. But both Justice and Tex um, commented that it didn't seem like Wyatt affects the quarterback all that much. So I put in a little bit of time today and categorized every one of the Packers' major pass rushers, sacks, hits, and hurries, um, and looked you know, basically by percentage how often they are getting one of those three. And Devontae Wyatt actually is a very interesting test case here because among the Packers' top pass rushers, he is hitting the quarterback by far the least. If you look at those three different categories of pressure, you got your sacks, you got your hits, and your hurries, two of those three involve actually contacting the quarterback. And I think intuitively you can see why that would make a, a big difference. People don't like to get knocked down. People don't like to get touched. Um, and part of the wear and tear of the war of attrition that is a football game is physically contacting other players. Even if you weren't sacking a quarterback – you can make his day miserable by just hitting him a lot. This is something they've tried to kind of legislate out of the game a little bit, but it's there. It's still part of the game, and hitting people matters. Getting physical contact on people matters. So where does this leave Devontae Wyatt? Well, um, when you look at the Packers' top pass rushers, almost nobody is actually hitting the quarterback less than Devontae Wyatt, despite him getting pressures more than anybody but Rashawn Gary. So when you look at just the the overall pressure numbers, he is the second most effective player the Packers had have at just overall affecting the quarterback. But he has by far the smallest percentage of his pass rushes that end with contact on the quarterback. So this is by percentage. Um, Lucas Van Ness actually leads the way here. More than 50% of his pass rushes, excuse me, of his pressures end with contact on the quarterback. 30% of his pressures this year have resulted in a sack. Another 25% have resulted in a hit. So that gives you a total of 55% of his his pressures um, resulting in contact with the quarterback. Preston Smith is next. Uh, It's just about 49% for him. So 21% of his pressures have been sacks and change. Another 27% and change uh, have been hits. Rashawn Gary uh, is just behind Kingsley and Igbari percentage-wise, though volume-wise he's way ahead. Uh, But they're they're nearly the same, right about 40%. 
Carl Brooks is just over 30%, about 34%. Then you've got Kenny Clark at 26% of his pass rushers ending with contact on the quarterback. And then all the way down at the bottom, you've got Devontae Wyatt, who is only ahead of Colby Wooden and TJ Slayton in terms of the number of pass rushers that result in contact on the quarterback. It's True, 14.5% of his rushes or of his pressures are sacks, but he's only hitting the quarterback on 8.3% of his pass rushes. And I realize that's a lot of numbers, but I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when you talk about how often these guys are um, affecting the quarterback. I think, I think Wyatt is having a really good second season. When you look at his combination of how often he's pressuring the quarterback and how often he's coming up with, with stops in the run game, that's something I wrote about on one of my picks columns a couple of weeks ago, there's really nobody better on the Packers in terms of that combo job. You've got, um, you've got Wyatt out ahead of everybody. Um, there's really no one comparable on the Packers in terms of offering both pass rush and run stop ability. Preston Smith does it a little bit, though, to a lesser degree. Lucas Van Ness, kind of the same thing. Rashawn Gary's not quite a one-trick pony, but I think everyone would agree that the run game isn't his strongest area. And then you're starting to get down to guys like Kenny Clark, who is an all-arounder, but he's not getting pressures at the rate of of a, of a Wyatt or a Clark. And then on the way o- opposite end of the spectrum, you've got TJ Slayton, who's pretty much exclusively a run stopper. This is not to take away what, from what Devontae Wyatt is doing, but this is just a reminder that when you talk about pressures, it still is worth, I think, drilling down there a little bit and digging into what some of these numbers really mean and what they can really say about what you're doing as a pass rusher because that is going to tell a different story of the kind of season that you're having. And the story it says about Devontae Wyatt right now is that he could could do a little bit better on finishing and maybe that will come with time. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.